Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul once wrote, The sure hope of the Lord's return has provided strength to many, to many a suffering Christian. Knowing that Jesus will come again to consummate God's kingdom helps us to see the trials of life in their proper perspective and endure them for the sake of Jesus. When we are weighed down with illness and suffering, or our suffering tribulation simply for being a follower of Christ, let us not focus on the pain of the suffering but that we experience now, but on the return of our Lord, who will destroy death forever. Jesus is coming back. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Jesus, our sovereign reigning king, the hope of the entire world, the only way to salvation, Jesus Christ at some point in the future is coming back. Does that excite you? Does that give you hope? Do you look forward to that time? When Christ comes back in power and in glory. When Christ comes back to set all things right. When Christ comes back to give, their, to give the dead their brand new bodies. When Christ comes back to judge the world. When Christ comes back to finish his redemptive work. Where there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more pain and no more death or betrayal or hate anymore. That truth, that truth gives me hope. Jesus is coming back. As sure as the sun rises in the east and goes down in the west, Jesus, God, and Jesus, fully man, our Savior, is coming back for his people. And this is where we are then in the text of Mark right now. Jesus, the great prophet, is telling his disciples about his return in power and glory. And when he will come, he's not just coming for, to sit on a throne, he's coming for his people. As Matthew says, also that the tribes of the earth will mourn. You see, his coming will be great joy, but also great sorrow for some it will be great excitement for the believers, but it will be great horror for those who are not in Christ. It will be met with celebration and mourning. And the difference ultimately is one question. Are you or are you not in Christ? 
That's going to be the deciding factor. Do you believe or do you not believe? And so Jesus in part, in this part of Mark, in chapter 13, he's going to move on from the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's going to move to the future of his return at the end of the age. And this is such a big truth to talk about. Now, before we jump in here, let's just take a moment and talk about the context of where we are actually in the text. The context will really help us here. We're in chapter 13, the Gospel of Mark, which, as we said, is by far the hardest text to interpret for lots of reasons. Reasons I won't go into here because we spent a lot of time unpacking that four weeks ago. And I would encourage you, if you've missed any of the last four weeks, that you'd go back and listen to those messages. It will help to kind of fill in the details of what we're going to be talking about today. But that being said, Jesus the Messiah, or the Anointed One, in chapter 11, he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey at the beginning of Passion Week. And he did so in fulfillment of specific prophecy, proving beyond doubt that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the King. And as you remember, Jesus didn't come in as the King to drive out the Roman army at that time. Instead, he actually came in and pronounced judgment against Israel and on her leaders and on the temple itself for their unfaithfulness and their unfruitfulness. And as a result, Jesus then got into several confrontations with the religious leaders as he tried, as they tried to put him in his place and tried to run him out of there, but they failed. And he demonstrated that he is, in fact, the Messiah and King. And then Jesus, after leaving the temple for the last time, said to his disciples something that they would have not expected for him to say. But he said that the temple itself, the pride of the Jewish nation, the crown jewel of Jerusalem, would be completely destroyed and raised completely to the ground. And the disciples asked him two important questions. When will this be? And what will be the sign of this to happen? And Jesus as the anointed prophet of God, begins to answer their questions. He first talks about the coming persecution of Christians and the difficult circumstances that surround them that would actually happen throughout history. And then he warns them of false teachers that would pop up trying to distract them from their mission. And then he tells them, specifically, when you see the Roman army drawing near to Jerusalem, you will know that the destruction of the temple and that Jerusalem is near. And he tells them, when you see that happening, you need to flee the city because the destruction of Jerusalem would be one of the most horrific events in all of human history which is exactly what happened in AD 70. The city fell and it was destroyed completely and the inhabitants were slaughtered as 1.1 million people died in the siege of Jerusalem. That's an unfathomable number. 1.1 million people. That is, that is more people than all of Kern County. Now last week I forgot to ask an important question. Brother Matt reminded me of the question. I should have asked this question, right? Of all the people who died in Jerusalem, do you know how many of them were Christians? Because most of the early Christians in that era were Jewish, especially in and around Jerusalem and in Judea. How many of the people that were there were Christians that died? And the answer is zero. No Christians died in the siege of Jerusalem. Do you know why? Because they took seriously what Jesus had said in his word. He predicted the destruction of the city and he warned them to leave and the Christians you know, took him at his word as a prophet and saw the Roman army coming and fled just exactly like Jesus said to do. 
The prophecy came true. Christianity survived because of Jesus' warning here. And so Jesus, in verses 5 to 23, answers the question about when the city will be destroyed and what will the sign be. But then in verse 24, Jesus moves on and departs from the destruction of Jerusalem and begins to talk about the coming of the Son of Man. He departs from one event and begins to talk about another event, which is what we're going to be looking at and talking about today in verses 24 through 27. But before we jump into this text, we need to address a couple of questions I think we just need to kind of get out of the way up front. Number one is the, the question of literal and symbolic, the, the literal versus symbolic nature of Jesus' words here. Should we take him literally, right? Should we take him symbolically? And what parts of it do we take literally and symbolically? This text right here is actually a very good example of how complicated that particular issue can be. Because there are some who will say that, that they read the Bible literally, and their whole interpretive method is to read the Bible literally. That, that's their first rule of hermeneutics. And whenever possible, you are to read it in the literal sense. But in fact, some will say that, that, that this is actually the division between what is known as dispensational theology and covenant theology. Some will say that dispensationalists read the Bible more literally, while covenanters read the Bible symbolically or allegorically. Not only is this a, a gross generalization, but it really misunderstands both interpretive methods Right? And it's clear that if somebody says that, they don't really understand either position very well. It's not as simple as that. Because the problem is most people who would say that they're committed to reading the Bible literally will take, you know, take, the, take several words in this text literally, but then they'll come to other words in this text and say, no, that's not literal. And the truth is we need to humble ourselves enough to understand that that, that there are lots of different understandings from different theological frameworks. We need to understand the theological framework we're coming from. We need to understand that, that there's a context. We need to understand that there's a theology behind this. And that we have to realize that everybody makes choices based on how they interpret the Bible, whether it's a classical dispensational point of view or a Federalist 1689 point of view. I say those words because most people don't know what they are, those are, but everybody has a framework. There is a lot to consider when it comes down to the text. It's not always easy to determine what to take literally and what to take symbolically. And the truth be told, you know, we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to figure it, have it all figured out and understand what Jesus is actually talking about here and what, he's, what he wants us to do and how he wants us to respond in light of what he's talking about here. Praise the Lord for that, right? As we have said, we're saved by grace through faith, not by perfect theology. The second question is we need to consider is, I think it's probably the more important question. And that is the question of when these words that Jesus speaks are actually fulfilled. Because there are some people who would say that Jesus' words in this text were fulfilled in and around 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem. They will say that Jesus is talking, what he's talking about here is not so much the return of Jesus at the end of all things, but rather that the end of a particular age, the, the Old Testament Judaism age. And this imagery, they say, is symbolic of Christ's judgment upon Israel. And this judgment is his vindication for being rejected by Israel. And everything that, that, that he says here then, they believe, is related to that. Right? That all of this has happened in the past. And that there is nothing future here what Jesus' words are. Right? That's, that's one perspective. Ironically, it's called a symbolic perspective, but they hold to a literal interpretation of verse 24, which says, in those days after that tribulation, 
indicating the days immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem to support their claim. Not to mention they use the literal understanding of verse 30 where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass. Now, with, now, now this point of view has its merits because it does solve some problems when you're trying to, to work through the text, but I think it has a lot of weaknesses as well. Not to mention this text certainly demonstrates the issue of literal interpretation and symbol, symbolic in, interpretation that it's not as simple as one might imagine that it is. Now, the other perspective is called the historical perspective, which is, which by the way, doesn't take verse 24 or 30 quite so literally, but it does see Jesus's words in the text as referring to the future return in glory. Those who hold his perspective believe that Jesus in verses 5 through 23 was talking about Jerusalem, right, but now extends into the distant future beginning at verse 24, talking about his second coming. By the way, this is the view that I hold. I, I hold that this is future, that what Jesus is speaking about is the future. And I would expect, I think, knowing most of your backgrounds, that you would too. Right? Jesus is talking about here his future return in victory. Jesus' prophecy moves from Jerusalem in AD 70 to a future hope of all Christians, the return of Christ. And I would think that most of you would, would agree with that. And so, and so we have the alternative perspective and you have the traditional perspective. Now, I bring this up because if you're interested in the traditional, I mean, the alternative perspective, I can point you to some books and you can read on that, but that's not the perspective I'm coming with from today. All right. Now, when I began to work on this message, I actually started working through the issues and, and I actually started writing notes explaining all of the details of these different perspectives to give you a better handle on these things. And then I remembered something. I already have a tendency to go long anyway. So I'm not going to dive into all the academic details here. If you want to know more about these perspectives, I'd be happy to give you the reading so you can do the homework yourself. Suffice it to say that we're going to move on understanding two things. The issue of literal and symbolic interpretation is not as simple as people claim for it to be, because even those who say that they hold to a literal interpretation don't interpret verses 24 and 30 quite literally. Right? Number two, I'm convinced that the traditional perspective is the right angle. It's the right perspective. Because once you consider the context and all of the Old Testament references Jesus uses and the prophetic language that he employs here, he's not talking about some symbolic vindication, but instead, I believe, is referring to a very real point in the future where he will return and finish his redemptive work. That's the direction we're going to go this morning. Jesus, in his text, is promising his return. That is the perspective I'm going to preach from, and, and that is the text, that, that this text is the promise of Christ. It is a promise from him that he's going to come back for his people. And so with that in mind, let's look at Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. And it says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven, in the heavens, will be shaken. A very complex text. I mean, it's one of those complex texts that sometimes we just tend to read through, right, to get to the next part. The fact is this text will challenge a person's interpretive method because some will say Jesus' words about the sun and the moon and the stars must be taken literally, but then at the same time, they'll deny that he is speaking literally about the immediacy after the fall of Jerusalem. 
Because Jesus says, in those days, after that tribulation, the reality is we need to be flexible in our understanding of the text and realize that the issue of literal versus symbolic interpretations is actually not the point here. In fact, it misses the point. The point that we need to see here is Jesus in this verse is saying something very prophetic in nature. Actually, he's speaking quite apocalyptic. The phrase that Jesus uses here to begin verse 24, in those days, I want you to understand we see it in English, but it's not simply just an expression about time. He's just not saying that like, hey, as a matter of fact, or in those days, the phrase that he's actually using specifically has reference to several Old Testament texts that the prophets of old would use in the Old Testament. And he's using a, a, an expression that would draw his audience to the Old Testament again, right? A, a text or a, an expression that would always indicate something big or important is about to take place. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 15, it says, notice the expression, in those days, at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Obviously a clear prophetic statement of who? Christ. Right? How about Joel chapter 2, verse 29? Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. What is this promise referring to? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is a distant prophecy. How about Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23? This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because you have heard, because we have heard that God is with you. Notice the future evangelistic and missionary motif that are found in his words here. But again, the common thread is in those days. Jesus is using an expression to make it clear that he is acting in this moment as a prophet, that he is the great prophet. Remember, Jesus the Messiah holds three offices. He is the priest, he is the king, and he is the prophet. And this expression in those days that he's using usually indicates that God is about to intervene into human history in a big way. Jesus is saying that God is going to intervene into history, right? And this will take place, he's saying, after the tribulation. Now, we have to realize that the tribulation that Jesus is referring to doesn't have to be the fall of Jerusalem but rather a future tribulation that the fall of Jerusalem foreshadows, is an example of, as we've seen, types and shadows moving forward. In fact, the book of Revelation calls the, the coming tribulation the great tribulation. The New Testament talks about tribulations, right? But the book of Revelation makes it clear that there will be a great tribulation. Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 gives us a clue to that. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so it's reasonable to suppose that what Jesus is referring to here is the great tribulation, right? 
is preceding the coming of man. Now again, there is a lot of academic stuff to be able to, to navigate through the, between the differences of that tribulation and the great tribulation. And again, if you'd like to read all that, I'd be happy to do that. I just don't want to go two and a half, half hours a day. So. And all God's people said, Amen. that's right, all right. And so it's reasonable to suppose that Jesus is referring to the great tribulation before which precedes the coming of the Son of Man. Because, because the words in those days usually describes what's called a theophany or a visual image of God. Right? Those words in those days also usually precede a divine intrusion into history involving either judgment or restoration. Right? And we have all of these things here. Right? What Jesus is talking about is all of these things. God intruding into history. We have a theophany, the, the image of the Son of Man. And then we have judgment and we have restoration all wrapped up in this event here. Which then, I think, in light of that, causes verses, the end of verse 24 and 25 to make a little bit more sense. Which say, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. What we need to realize is God's divine intrusion into history usually is accompanied by great cosmic disturbances. When God invades creation, creation responds. Kind of like cause and effect. In Matthew chapter 27, we read that during Christ's crucifixion, darkness came over the land. And when Christ died, a great earthquake shook everything, including rocks that split and tombs were opened up, and even the veil in the temple was torn. God's activity in creation is often accompanied by, by creation being greatly disturbed in visible ways. By the way, which has always been the pattern. It's not anything new. What Jesus is saying is not a new you know, kind of an idea. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, it says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 7 and 8, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. How about Joel chapter 2, verse 10? The earthquakes uh, before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Whenever God intrudes into creation, creation always responds. And Jesus is making an allusion to these Old Testament prophecies regarding this. And what Jesus is saying what Jesus is saying here is that the great tribulation in the future, after that comes, something big is really going to happen. This is the part that we need to really think about. Something incredibly big is going to happen. Something that is so big that it's going to disturb the created order. Something that is so big that, that the earth and, and the cosmos is going to shudder. Something that is so big that unmistakable cosmic events are going to happen. Something that is so big that it will be visible in the world around us. Something mind-blowing big. And what is this event that will happen? What is, what is the big thing that God's going to do? What is this intrusion into creation and history itself that Jesus is referring to? He tells us. He says, in verse 26... 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Brothers and sisters, I can't even overstate how big of an event this is. This is a huge event that will shake all of creation. Please hear me on this. I mean, if we truly understand what Jesus is saying here, we would be shaken too. If we truly thought through and understood what Jesus is saying here, our heart would be filled with wonder and awe and terror and excitement and dread and hope all at the same time. If we truly understand what Jesus is saying here, we would be a flood with emotions. Our hearts would rejoice, but our hands would tremble. Because this event is an event of unimaginable, epic proportions. And again, I can't overstate that. This, is, this event is as big as the death of Christ. This event is as big as his resurrection. This event is as big as the creation of the cosmos itself. Of course, creation is going to be shaken. Because this event that Jesus is talking about is the promise of, of the completion of God's redemptive work that began all the way back in the garden. All that God has been doing throughout history, all that God has been working towards, all of the lives, all of the little details that God has sovereignly been working out will come to a completion at this event. This event is the victorious return of the sovereign king, Jesus Christ. No wonder creation will shudder. Jesus is saying to his disciples that he's coming back. Notice the reference to the Son of Man. It's unmistakable who he's talking about. This is a reference that's used, uh, that, that he uses of himself several times in the book of Mark. He uses this over and over again. This is one of his favorite titles to use of himself. It's the Son of Man. Jesus is clearly referring to himself and saying that at some point in the future, after the great tribulation, he's coming back and he's not coming humbly on the back of a donkey. He's coming back in the clouds in unimaginable power and glory as the sovereign reigning king of the universe. And all of creation is going to be shaken by this event. Let that sink in. And the thing that we need to realize is not only is he coming back, he's coming back for his own, his elect, his people. It says, I will send out, it send out he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. Jesus Christ is coming back to gather his people, people of every nation and tribe and tongue, believers from everywhere, from all time. He is coming back for his own. This is one of the most incredible and important events in all of redemptive and human history. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And so in light of that, rather than just talking about whether the sun will literally be darkened and how that's going to happen, or whether or not you know, the, the, the stars are literally going to fall out of place and how that's going to happen, right. let's focus on the return of Christ. That's where I want to spend our time together because, because it's the point of the text. Because regardless of how or when it's going to happen, regardless of your end times perspective, whether you believe in pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib, 
regardless of if you're pre or post or all millennial, regardless of all of those things, regardless of how those things work out, one thing that we need to see and believe and agree on is the truth that Jesus Christ is coming back in victory and in power, and that is our hope. That is what we're waiting for. In fact, let me just read for you how this is expressed in our statement of faith. I want you to hear the hope in this text. Article 10 of our statement of faith says this, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end according to his promise. Jesus will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment, and the righteous will be resurrected and, glorif and glorified bodies will... The, the righteous will be in their resurrected bodies, the righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. They will receive their reward and dwell in heaven with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope. That's what we long for. Christ is coming back in great power, in great glory. And this is what Jesus, the prophet, in this text is predicting here. His victorious return at the end of all things. Now, with that, my aim isn't to talk about how or when that's going to happen. There's lots of different ideas about that. I even have my own thoughts about that. But frankly, again, that misses the point. My aim today is to proclaim to you just how epic and unimaginable this event will be. And my aim is to help you to understand the magnitude of what's going to take place and what that means for God and what that means for us and what it means for the rest of the world. My aim is to whet your appetite for the time Christ will finally come once and for all to set all things right. My goal, my aim, is to remind you of the absolute certainty that this is Christ's promise to come back. And Jesus always keeps his promises. And so I want you to, and so I just wanted to spend a little time talking about the return of Christ and what that means for us. And the first thing that we need to see is that Christ's return that he talks about here ultimately is proof of his deity. It is proof that he is in fact God. I don't know if you realize it, but this section here is, has a high Christology, a high view of who Jesus is as the rest of Mark does. In fact, if you remember, as we began Mark chapter 1 a couple of years ago, in the beginning from the very opening verse, Mark declares who Jesus is, that he's the son of the living God. Mark has made it his mission to tell us over and over again that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. Over and over again, Mark confronts us with the truth of Christ's divinity. It is a foundational truth for our faith. You must believe that Jesus is God to be a Christian. This is one of those places that's non-negotiable. It's a first order doctrine. You, what you believe about the end times isn't first order. We can all disagree about that. We can't disagree about this. If you don't believe that Christ is God, then you're not a believer. It's just as simple and cut and dry as that. I want you to hear I want to be as clear as possible here. If you don't believe that Jesus is the eternal Son, the eternal God, the Son, 
then you have not come to faith in Christ. And you've not been moved from death to life. And you're still in your sins. If you believe that Jesus is just a prophet, if you believe that Jesus is just some wise man who's a great example to live after, if you believe that Jesus is an exalted man who's working his way to godhood like his father before him, you are not in Christ. And the wrath of God still abides on you. If you believe that Jesus is a created being like some archangel, you are still lost. The Bible makes it clear that you must believe in Jesus. And the Bible makes it clear that Jesus, in no uncertain terms, is, in fact, God in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we can spend a month of Sundays on that, but I go long enough as it is by myself. Understand that what you believe about the end times, again, is not a first-order doctrine. We can disagree whether it's about dispensationalism or covenant theology or you know, how and when the, the, the details work. It's that way out. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and nobody knows those answers, but we do know the answer is who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh, and his return is proof that Jesus is divine. In fact, let me just illustrate for you why. Notice it says that the Son of Man will come riding on the clouds. This is not just imagery of some future Messiah. This is imagery of God himself. The Old Testament is replete full of examples of God's visible presence in the world and is always associated with, with somebody on the clouds or in the clouds. For example, Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Leviticus chapter 16 and the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that they may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Numbers chapter 11, verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. And, and there's many more of these references that I can point to. But the point being is when you see somebody riding on the clouds, it's an image of God. Jesus combining the, the Son of Man with the, the cloud images. Jesus is declaring his deity. Right? But also notice that it says that he sends forth the angels. The Son of Man sends forth the messengers of heaven to do his bidding. This, like forgiveness, is the prerogative of God. The Son of Man has sovereign power and authority over all creation, including the angels, to do his bidding. But again, not only that, notice it says his elect. It didn't say the elect. It says his elect, his people. They belong to Jesus. They belong to him. And the elect is not just future members of the church. The elect is all of his people from all time. All of the elect. They're believers from every generation. They are God's people. His elect. Which means Christ is God. Not to mention the idea of God bringing in his elect people to himself is a reoccurring theme throughout the Old Testament. Again, Jesus He's brilliant in his use of the Old Testament here. Right? Isaiah chapter 27, verses 12 through 13. 
In the day, in that day, notice the language, in that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come to worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Can you see the imagery here of, of the Lord's elect, the Lord's people being brought back? Psalm chapter uh, 107, verse 2 and 3 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom has he redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south? The image of God gathering his people is a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is clearly identifying the Son of Man as God. And his, and his words make that clear. But let me show you in unmistakable fashion what Jesus means by what he's saying here. In chapter 14, as we approach that, we will come to this text. But in chapter 14, Mark records that Jesus, after he's arrested, has a confrontation with the Sanhedrin and it says but he remained silent and made no answer and the high priest asked him are you the Christ the son of the blessed he's asking are you are you the Messiah are you the son of God and Jesus said I am by the way if you've been listening to me preach for years now you understand what that expression means that's ego I mean right I am. That's the name of God. He is referring to himself the same way that God referred himself in, in Exodus. He says, I am. And then he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witness do you need? The high priest knows exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's not mistaking at all what he's claiming. Jesus was claiming to be God, which for, for the high priest was blasphemy. And that is why they, they ended up murdering him. And so the return of Christ proves his divinity. But secondly, the return of Christ will be victorious and triumphant. The return of Christ will be an absolute victorious and triumphant event. Christ is not returning in hopes that maybe he might be able to turn the tide on the battle somehow, some way. Christ's return is a demonstration that he is absolutely, completely victorious and completely triumphant. That he rules with absolute authority and sovereignty. The victory will be so complete. In fact, Daniel, I think, gives us an allusion to that. In chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is coming in victory to reign. In fact, notice Matthew in chapter 25 says in verse 31, 
And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, notice the language here, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Brothers and sisters, this is indisputable proof. Indisputable proof that your hope is secure. Because no matter what we're facing today, no matter what's happening in the world around us today, no matter how far the world seems to be slipping off the edge, Christ will come and he will be victorious. And he is our triumphant king. When you feel down in despair and you see the world's going in a way that you think that is in a horrific direction and you think there's no way back, remember this, these two words. He wins. He wins. And, as those, and it is He who will gather all of us who are in Him to Himself. This is the glorious truth. Brothers and sisters, this is indisputable. And so Christ's return proves that He is God. Christ's return will be in triumph. But Christ's return will also be a time of devastating judgment. Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come and his angels in the glory of his Father. And, when he, and, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. When Christ comes back, all things get settled. All things get settled. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, if you remember, he said this, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels. He's talking about the same event here. When Christ returns, he will judge those who do not belong to him. In fact, Matthew, we see um, Jesus gives a, a parable that explains the details of this. Matthew chapter 13, beginning verse 36 reads, And then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed is, the, good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation chapter 20 even gives us more perspective. Then I saw a great white throne, and in him was seated, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and great and small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death in Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Christ's return will absolutely be a time of devastating judgment because this is the time Christ will settle all accounts. This is the time where justice will be given to all those who deserve justice. This will be the time, remember when the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is the time that God's vengeance will be poured out on the unrighteous. This is the time where God's wrath will be let loose on all those who deserve it. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, we all deserve it. But the only difference between those who will experience the wrath of God and those who are spared the wrath of God is Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ have their names written in the book of life and those who are not in Christ do not. And this is the point that Mark has emphasized as we talked about over and over in this gospel. There are only and only have been and only ever will be two types of people. For all of the diversity of this world, for all of our individuality, for all of our preferences and choices, for all of our variables and group identities, the world will be divided in only two groups of people. There are those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. There are those who believe and those who do not believe. There are those who've had their hearts changed and those who have not. And it doesn't matter what kind of music you like. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. It doesn't matter right, whether you're a people person or you're an introvert. It doesn't matter if you live in the city or you live in the country. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter about your race. It doesn't matter about your upbringing. There's only two groups of people in this entire world. There are people that are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Everything else is an illusion. In the end, one thing will matter. Are you or are you not in Christ? And if you're not in Christ, then the judgment and the wrath of God will fall upon you. And you will experience the full justice of God for all of your sins forever. And as you make your way towards the gates of hell, and as you step across the threshold into hell itself... Creation will not mourn for you. All of creation will shout for joy and rejoice that God's justice has been done upon you. If you're not in Christ, that is your fate. Because God will be glorified even in his justice. When King Jesus pronounces judgment, all of creation will celebrate. The coming of Jesus is a time of horrific judgment for those who are not in Christ. But for those who are in Christ, it will be a time of unimaginable, unbridled joy. The return of Christ will be a time of unimaginable beauty. Imagine a point in history where everything, everything, everything is right where sin has no more effect on you, where sin doesn't affect your body anymore, where it doesn't affect your mind anymore, it doesn't affect your mouth anymore, where it doesn't affect your relationships with other people, where you can actually love people with a sincere love without any ulterior motives. 
Imagine a world where everything is new and everything is perfect. That's how the Bible describes the victorious return of Christ. Revelation chapter 21, I think, gives us such a beautiful picture of this. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What a glorious truth by itself, but it only gets better. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Imagine that world where there is no more betrayal. There is no more hurt. No more misunderstandings. No more bitterness and strife. No more unfaithfulness in any form or fashion. Again, let me take you back to Revelation chapter 7. Beginning in verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, the return of Christ is the epic event that we are all hoping for. This is the event that we are looking forward to. Just as, as believers of old look forward to the coming of Christ for the first time, we look forward in the same kind of anticipation for him to come back and make all things right. But while we wait, what are we to do in the meantime? Now there's a number of applications for this but I want to share with you three. I think three that will help us to follow Christ. The first one is you need to settle in your hearts that Jesus will return. And I know this might seem strange, but oftentimes our faith and our theology can become very theoretical for us and stuck up here, and we can know the truth intellectually, all the while not be comforted and strengthened by the truth emotionally. For example, Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God will work all things out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. It's a promise from God that God is going to work all things out for good. Not all things are good, but he will work all things out for good, even the bad things. And this is a truth that in the moment you can know intellectually, but still not embrace. But until you embrace it, until our hearts accept it, we're going to struggle with the reality. It's not until we actually fully embrace the truth that we can actually have joy in the midst of those struggles. That God has promised to work all things out for our good. This is the same thing. This is a truth that we can know intellectually. This is a truth that we must embrace within our hearts 
Christ coming back is a truth that we need to take to heart. He will set all things right. So when you see something's wrong, before you despair, you can know that God will set it right. All that's wrong in the world will be corrected. All the pain that you experience will be gone. There will be no more theoretical pie in the skies kind of hope. This is a real event that's been ordained by God to happen. And just as sure as the destruction of Jerusalem happened, just as Jesus promised it would, his return also is just as sure. You need to settle in your hearts that this is the truth so that you can, number two, rest in this promise. Brothers and sisters, if there's a call that we all need to heed, if there's a call that we as a body of believers needs to heed, as you see the world spinning out of control, is we need to rest in the promises of God. We need to rest and not allow the world to get us anxious and twist it up in knots and turn us inside out and make us really ungodly at times. We need to rest in these promises. This is the, where we, where the place we must go as believers where we're trusting in the promise that Christ will come back and settle all things once and for all. When we look at the chaos around us, we don't despair because we know that God is faithful. But when we see the world seem like it's falling apart, we remind ourselves that God still is fully in control. When we look out in the world and it appears that true justice is nowhere to be found, because the world has flip-flopped everything, that good is, is bad and bad is good and right is wrong and wrong is right. What we understand is that we're looking forward to and we're resting in the promise that will come a day, that there will come a day that creation itself will tremble and our Savior and King will come back in great power and glory and He will make all things right and the wicked will be judged and the righteous will live forever and ever in joy. We must rest our hearts and our souls in this promise. R.C. Sproul, I want to remind you what he said. The sure hope of the Lord's return has provided strength to many a suffering Christian. Knowing that Jesus will come again to consummate God's kingdom helps us to see the trials of, of life in their proper perspective and endure them for the sake of Christ. When we are weighed down with illness or our, our suffering, tribulation, simply for being Christ followers, let us not focus on the pain of the suffering now, but on the return of the Lord who will destroy death forever. Let us rest in that hope and finally as we are strengthened by this truth, let us then take action. Let us take action to share the hope of Christ. Because as we've said, there's only how many types of people? Two. There are those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And we know very clearly what's going to happen to both of them. When Christ returns, we know what's going to happen. And this should strengthen our resolve. Because this world as we know, is not going to last forever. Christ's return reminds us that it is not an eternal universe. It's not going to last forever because just as sure as the prophecies of Christ's birth were fulfilled 
And just as sure as the destruction of Jerusalem happened as prophesied, just as sure as all that, Christ is coming back, not to mention everyone, unless Christ returns first, will die. Everyone's going to taste death. Everyone. If Christ does not come back in the next 150 years, everyone who lives on the planet right now, who's alive today, will be dead. Have you ever thought about that? Within 150 years of this moment right now, everyone who's alive, 7.8 billion people will, will die if Christ doesn't come first. That's 7.8 billion people dead in just over a century. And it's been like 20 centuries since Christ has left the earth. Everyone either through death or through Christ's return will stand before him and they will be judged. And as our statement of faith says, the unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. This is going to happen. And Christ rescued you. Not simply so you can just say, yay! He rescued you so that you can follow him. So that you can go where he's calling you to go. So that you can get on mission proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. Let me remind you of the gospel. The gospel that we should be preaching continually to ourselves and to everyone around us. That God created the heavens and the earth, in, including you. He is sovereign. He is holy, righteous, and just. And he created you for a relationship with him. But the problem is our sin creates a gulf between us. Our sin has shattered the relationship that we were supposed to have with God. We were image bearers of God, and now we are distorted image bearers of God. Forever separated from him unless something changes. And sin, our sin, cannot be overcome by our own efforts. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't be loving enough. You can't be devoted enough. You can't try hard enough to overcome the stain of your sin. It covers you up from one end to the next. It is who you are. That is the bad news. But God, in his grace and mercy, by the counsel of his own will, in eternity past, decided that he is going to make a payment for that sin. That Jesus Christ came into the world and lived a perfect life that you couldn't live and fulfilled the law that you couldn't fulfill and then died in your place, not just for your sins out here, stood in your place and made payment for your sins. And on that cross, the most ex scandalous exchange happens. All of your sins are cast upon Christ like they're his own and his righteousness that he earned is credited to you like it's your own. And then he died. He literally died. Jesus Christ, the man, the God-man, died on the cross and was buried and three days later rose again, proving that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save you from your sins and the wrath of God. And now he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And what do you have to do in response? Repent and believe the gospel, and that is it. You turn to God in faith, and you get on your knees and accept him as your Lord and Savior, and put all your hope and all of your trust in him and the future promise that he's coming back for you, and then you are saved. 
That's the message that we need to proclaim to the rest of the world. That is the only message that's going to change the rest of the world. That is the only message that is going to settle the issues between races in our country. That is the only message that's going to settle the political divide in our country. That is the only hope, that is the only hope that this world has. As we know, Christ is coming back at some point in power and glory and judgment. And your response to that will be wholly determined by if you're in Christ or not. Let us go forth proclaiming the gospel, bringing more people into the kingdom to the best of our ability, allowing God to work through us as broken instruments. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.